Welcome to Spotlight On. Today the spotlight is on the National Independent Venue Association, or NEVA. Spawned in the wake of the COVID pandemic, NEVA is a membership alliance devoted to securing the financial support needed to preserve the national ecosystem of independent concert venues and promoters. I spoke with NEVA board members Dana Frank, who is CEO of First Avenue Productions in Minneapolis, and Reverend Moose, the managing partner and co-founder of Marauder Group in New York City. We were joined by member Gary Witt of the Pabst Theatre Group in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We explored the perils facing independent promoters and how their communities and patrons can actively support them during this difficult time. We also discussed the optimism they all have for the future of the organization, its members, and live entertainment. This was a four-way video call with four times the opportunity for technical difficulties. If any of those are audible here, please bear with us. Thanks so much and enjoy the conversation. I, I don't want to assume too much about what um, listeners will know and not know. So I kind of want to start a little bit at the beginning um, before we leap forward by having each of you, you know, introduce yourself, your venue, your city, you know, who, who are you and who do you represent? Um, maybe Dana, you go first. Yeah, my name is Dana Frank. I'm the owner or CEO of First Avenue and the 7th Street Entry in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are independent promoters and venue operators uh, working entirely in Minnesota. Um, the First Avenue family consists of uh, not only the main room and the entry, but the Turf Club in St. Paul and Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul and also the Palace Theater. I'm Gary Witt, and I'm, uh, I'm the uh, CEO and the uh, co-owner of the Pabst Theater Group in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, the Pabst Theater Group consists of uh, a 300-cap backroom club, a 1,000-cap uh, straight GA floor Turner Hall ballroom that was built in 1883. The Pabst Theater, which was built in 1895, which is a beautiful old fourth oldest historic theater in America, oldest uh, operating theater in America. That's a cap of 1339. And the Riverside, which is built in 1927, has a cap of uh, 2414. I feel like I'm in old places all the time. But we, we've been doing this since 2002. And uh, promoters of 700 shows a year and we do oddly in our business i think we're a little different than dana and that like 30 percent of our business is comedy and podcasts and things like that so we we stretch into some weird worlds where we do some things that a lot of other people don't do and that in a city of our size compared to minneapolis as an example that helps us very much because we have a finite number of people to reach so we've got to be able to provide like a different kind of a weird variety and um we're way into doing that so it's fun I think I'm probably the least qualified person to be on this conversation. So uh, I'm Moose. I run a company called Marauder. We are uh, essentially the connecting point between our client base and the North American market. And we work with a number of different projects, but the, the one that is the most relevant in this context is we run Independent Venue Week in the U.S. And we brought it here to the U.S. several years ago. We have been preparing for our third year of Independent Venue Week uh, when this uh, pandemic started shutting venues down. And as that happened, we took it upon ourselves to try to figure out how to collect the voices and try to help people that were otherwise, I mean, they are independent, that's the very nature of it, but otherwise not necessarily uh, communicating with each other. And prior to, well, certainly prior to NEVA, 
Uh, and prior to Independent Venue Week, there really hasn't been a national organization on behalf of independent venues or promoters in any way. So Independent Venue Week sort of took that de facto position, and uh, we did everything we could to be able to make it so the venues and the promoters were not going through this on their own. And that was certainly right out the gate. I think it was something that none of, none of us really realized how much that was of use. And we talked to these different promoters throughout the year, and we have a different agenda than anyone else who is talking to as many different promoters because our business interest is we're trying to help them. Um, and so we're not necessarily trying to get revenue from them. Uh, we're trying to help them sell tickets. And when this all started to happen, I think we realized that the network that we had been such a, an integral part of, it needed more. It needed a more active voice than what Independent Venue Week was created to be able to do. And that's where all of us came together and started these discussions as far as if there's going to be represented representation on Capitol Hill, who's going to do it? How's it going to look? What's it going to ask for? And, uh, and how do we actually make that happen? And, uh, you know, I think Dana, who was probably the loudest voice in the room for quite some time asking those questions, certainly all of us, we just all, all found ourselves in the position of like looking around the room and being like, no, this has to happen. And then, you know, you keep looking at the same people and you're like, okay, I guess this is happening. And that's exactly what came together. So created a board, created committees, subcommittees, daily meetings, hourly meetings, middle of the night phone calls, uh, everything else to get this moving. And it's moving. Let me ask you on that front. Um, why wasn't there an independent venue and promoter alliance? And were there attempts in the past that went nowhere? Like, is there, do you guys, can you guys give any historical context for that? Well, I can tell you just from the conversations we had, because Independent Venue Week was in itself just a, you know, it's a marketing initiative. And so when people would call us up and they'd say, hey, I've been looking into creating this type of organization, you know, the urgency wasn't there as it is now. So I think it gave an opportunity for people to be able to sort of plot out what their ideal situation would look like. And there were many conversations that have happened in the past that have gone down this road. But the truth of the matter is, is independent promoters and, and owner operators, they, they don't have the time for this. You know, they're too consumed on the daily operations to be able to take a breath and say, yes, let's do something new that is, that is probably beneficial to the daily operations, but requires a different level of commitment. I mean, mm -hmm. everybody on this phone call has spent an obscene amount of time doing this, and it's come out of necessity. If, uh, if that necessity weren't there, I don't know how anybody would have found the time to, to do this. There's like an attitude um, in you know, music industry, maybe, but independent promoters, definitely, that, you know, like, uh, and rightly so, that we kind of like go to war every day, right? We're fighting every day. We're fighting for shows. We're fighting for customers. We're fighting for regulations that we need. We're fighting the multinational corporations. You know, we're kind of like at this position at, you know, a lot of us got into this industry and we thrive in it because we, and we enjoy those types of circumstances. But, um, you know, I think people are, are used to being a little bit defensive. Like I would just notice whenever I went to a new city, I'd always reach out to like the independent club or promoter and be like, Hey, let's grab dinner. And I'd love to, I'd love for you to take me on a tour of your town. 
And the, the first two hours was always like very like, what do you want from me? What are you doing here? Are you trying to come into my market? Like what's going on? And I had to be like, no, 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 I'm Minnesota. I love being the local guy. I think there is nothing more like noble and honorable than like being accountable and working for your community. I just, I find so much like pride and pleasure in that. Um, but there was definitely an attitude of, you know, a, a definite awareness. And so I give all the credit to Moose as being this independent voice, as he said that, you know, you're not trying to sell something, you're not trying to buy something, you're not competing, but you, I think without, without IBW and Marauder and Moose, this, this group never would have come together. I would say that my example is the, the, maybe it's the last year or so that Dana and I have gotten closer and learned to know more about each other's business. That is my own personal example. And that is that, you know, we both, I think I admired very much what she, you know, what she and what her team do. And I'm, like everybody that's in the, in our business, we all get each other's emails and that's really important for me. You know, like the idea of developing community is important for me. And I watched as Dana's people, they do such a wonderful job at it. Once we developed a relationship and kind of began talking, I think we had dinner out at, uh, we had meetings in LA, uh, you know, a while back. And uh, then we connected our people. And to me, it's still to this day, I'm very just surprised that the, what happened when we connected our people is that we found that we had so many amazing similarities. I mean, we're talking about operational similarities that we don't know that both of us are doing, but here we are both doing those things. And the main benefit of us putting our people together was that we said at that very moment, we're not alone. I know that's what we said, because we said, wait a minute, we're doing this. Can This is how we're doing it. Or, you know, we learned from things that they're doing. And, and to me, that extrapolates out to when I was on the first phone call originally when I was introduced to Moose is that, look, looking at what he's done with Independent Venue Week, it's the exact same thing. And it's in putting venues together that, you know, my perfect example would be like on our, one of our last calls where we had 40 people on the call, you know, out of that call, I had, you know, I had another venue who were smaller than us in Austin asking us specific questions about the PPP because my, we went to war and by the way, we went to war with Dana and her team to figure out how we could all get the PPP calls at all hours, emails, texts, it didn't matter. But we then were able to, my, my controller was on a phone call with the group from Austin today and he was teaching them what we had learned from the PPP. And, and as you extrapolate that out over the time period of, of, Let's make it through this. Let's survive. The good thing is, is what you mentioned earlier, is that there will be an organization here that will essentially strengthen the independent venue world, and it will strengthen us in our resolve to be able to, look, fight the battles that we fight quite often on a daily basis, stopping larger corporations from coming into our markets and taking our business away from us. And if we can nurture some smaller promoters to, and venue owners to become better at what they do, they'll, uh, they'll own or operate two, three, or four venues, and they'll grow to that size, and they'll do, instead of 120 or 200, they'll do 500 shows in the market. And then that really strengthens kind of our, the entirety of what we all do in general and doesn't homogenize the idea of let's book so-and-so band and sell it to so-and-so company, and it gets sent out to every venue that they associate with. What you mentioned, though, is just the very nature of being independent, isn't it? Like, you know, when, when Dana goes to a town and says, hey, I'm, I'm in town, I'd like to say hello, somebody else is going, well, what do you, what do you need from me? And, and, you know, Gary, when you're talking about just even being able to have those conversations with your, uh, your, your market neighbors, 
you know, the same thing is kind of true. It's like, okay, well, what's the work agenda here? But then when you go to things that are a little bit less guided, if you will, and, you know, like I can't tell you the number of different conferences I've been to where there's only like three promoters or, or buyers in the room and they all find each other and they're all from different parts of the country and they're not necessarily talking about anything specific to their work, but it's like they all kind of congregate together and they go from show to show together or event to event and they sit to dinner and then it ends and they never talk again. And I think that, you know, human nature is to, is to be with your people, with your tribe. Uh, but the, the nature of capitalism is to uh, do whatever you can do at any cost. And there's no home office that people are reporting to where there's like a, well, you need to work with, uh, the Northwest Territories, and you need to work with the Southeast, uh, you know, markets, and you need to be able to put all these things together because the, the the independent businesses are just focusing on their one room or their small handful of rooms, and uh, and that's what their their urgency is. There's and another there's another side of it too that we're, sorry we're, we're we're like we're sharks. We're every day, no matter what we do, every day our job is to keep eating, and once we eat it. We figure out how to put it, set it up in the box office, how to market it, how to communicate to the marketing team at the agency. And, we're, and it's got to be up by tomorrow. We don't have time to look around quite often. And smaller organizations have even less time to look around. So the very activity of what we do forces us to be continually on an escalator that keeps moving us forward, which at the same time doesn't necessarily say, hey, let's, let's get together with other people because we've got time to do it. Now, look, yeah, Polestar and things like that do that. But I don't know. I mean, I've, I've stopped going. I know, Dana, I know you go to it. But like, th- that becomes the least potential of actually talking to an agent you know, to get anything accomplished at that time. And maybe it is right that you could talk to each other, which is really good. But I see a great similarity uh, in our business and what I see in the restaurant business. They're in the exact same scenario, the exact same case. Yeah, larger restaurants are covered by whatever their tavern association that sells them down the rivers at some time when these things happen. But the reality is, is that those real independent restaurants, true independent restaurants are just like us. Their heads are down. They're cooking every day. They're making the next meal. They're trying to get through and they have to be experts at all things, but they don't have time to organize all of them. But guess what? The pandemic forces you to have time. And I think greatly that the, just like we're looking at in a lot of our own organization individually, like in things the way that we do things at the Paps Theater Group, we're doing this now with this organization because now we we have time and we're forced to find an answer somehow, some way to survival, which is what we're being threatened with, our very survival as a business at this time. I think for me, the aha moment was, you know, keep reading like about the, you know, the Live Nation stock and uh, and the market projections and, you know, they kept saying like, well, but when this is ending, their market share is going to be better because so many independents are just going to go out of business. Yeah. And I, you know, almost every, every article referenced that. And like, personally, you know, if, if people want to sell, if they feel like that's what's right for their business and, and their family, absolutely. Um, everyone has to do what's right. But for those that want to stay independent and that don't want to, I think, you know, we're here to help them and help provide some kind of structure and infrastructure and support to get through this time so that we don't, you know, wake up in whenever this ends in a landscape that does only have two or three or four companies. Um, And then, you know, hopefully Neva as an organization can help people for decades in the future who find themselves in similar circumstances. 
So let's uh, let that's that's great sort of foundational context. Let's talk a little bit um, more specifically about what we're hoping to do with the organization. So it's the National Independent Venue Association, just to level set so everybody knows what we're talking about. Um, it includes venues, operators, owners, and promoters from around the country coming together because of this catalyst, the, the pandemic as sort of this external force driving us all together. And I say us because you guys have been very gracious about allowing us to be part of this with you and, and to try to be part of the solution with you. Talk to me about the first order of business or the first two or three orders of business. Survival is sort of a big word. Um, how do we break that down into the things that the membership really needs to do and really needs as sort of immediate outcomes to be able to talk about all the big fun things we might be doing a year or two years from now to really drive the business forward? What, what do we have to do now? Yeah, so the immediate pressing need um, as of like three days ago, or I should say that started three days ago, um, is just this need for federal support and federal funding to make sure our industry can carry through. You know, because um, independent venues and promoters, we're not just physical locations and we're not just shows, we're economic multipliers, we're the heart of local communities. There are so many other businesses that rely on our shows. You know, the restaurants, the hotels, the car rentals, uh, parking meters, everything kind of uh, is reliant on us uh, us opening back up and um, you know our artist community and our employees and it just feels like there's there's so much weighing and so you know I don't know any independent business that can go 18 months without revenue I mean that's just a, a monumental task um, and so the first order of business is helping Congress understand and, and realize how important we are and not again not just we're important to our our own employees we're important to our, our artists and our communities but also to the whole economic ecosystem surrounding us and uh, proving to them why we deserve this, this support and, um, you know, making sure that again, that our, our membership base is comes out of this with our, uh, their businesses, their employees, their artists stronger than ever. How do you tell that story? <clears throat> I mean, that's, that's a story that every individual tells and every individual story, every clubs and promoter story is going to be different. And I think that's really the strength of Neva. Um, like I said, like we're the local guys and sometimes I think people talk about that like in the pejorative, but I, I personally could not be more proud. Um, and so I, um, you know, as the local guys, we can, we're going to tell our stories as constituents to our representatives. How, you know, my, my story would be, I have personal guarantees. We made huge capital improvements. We've, um, supported our community through countless benefits, through donations, through internships, you know, through programs and services. And like, we really view ourselves not just a business, but as the heart and of the local music scene. And so that that's what I that's what I plan to share. But you know, a promoter in Montana or Florida or uh, New York City might have a different story. Yeah, I think we're, you know, it's important to note that people see us and they say, well, what do you guys do? You're the local concert promoter, you sell tickets. But in in reality, I think that, you know, how we see ourselves and I think also how I know how Dana and, and they see themselves in Minneapolis is that, you know, we're, we're, we develop community. We don't just sell tickets. We develop community. We build and we develop community and we have the ability through the things that we do to be able to help and to educate and to provide editorial content and to inspire our city. I spend, you know, $2 million a year advertising, basically sending out a love letter 
telling people to come to Milwaukee. When we booked the David Byrne show, I told David Byrne, like, the day that we booked that show, what we did is we sprayed a David Byrne cologne on the city to make the city smell better for three months until the date of that show. And everybody felt good about themselves. Developers make their decisions of where to build apartments based upon the consistency of what we do, you know, and, and people travel across the state lines and they stay at hotels, et cetera, et cetera. And then the culmination of that and the actual, the show actually taking place is what gives people the confidence to know that this is what inspires a city. It's like having a championship team, except we do it night after night after night. In Milwaukee, the Bucks were almost, it looks like they were going to be a championship NBA team, but, but apparently there's no ending to that. But, but those kinds of things are reasons why, you know, why also we do what we do because we are part of giving the city its soul and its identity of who it is night after night, not 10 days out of the year, not 40 days out of the year, but night after night after night, that's what gives the city its soul and identity. If you go to Minneapolis, I mean, one of the most single, most iconic things in Minneapolis is first Avenue. I mean, that's amazing. And I hope that we accomplish the same thing with the Paps Theater and in the things that we do and the iconic building that it is. And, you know, so I think we're, we're way, we're much bigger than, uh, you know, than just actually being concert promoters or selling tickets. Plus, plus I also think it's something that, that, uh, that Dana said very eloquently when in putting the letter together, the simple thing is, is, is if you're a Congressman or a Senator, if you love Bruce Springsteen or if you love, the Eagles or something like that, or if you love Prince, all those artists began their careers not playing in arenas, but they all played in small clubs. And if you want there to be a next Springsteen or a next Prince or a next Eagles or a next Lizzo, then you have to, you have to know the infrastructure has to be there to do it. And by the way, if you like turning on your car radio or your radio any place, the only way for the infrastructure to work to actually deliver new music is for there to be a place for artists to perform because we all know that when the internet came about the ability for artists to be able to derive revenue from record sales was eliminated and we are now the sole reason why how artists make money they make money by playing in our venues and they tour more than they ever toured before and they tour in unique ways and unique things tour like we said earlier i I did a show with chevy chase showing a version of Christmas vacation and talking afterwards. I never would have thought 18 years ago we would, you know, that we would do that, but um, it's sold out in like seven minutes. So I think we will do it again. Yeah. I, I just find it funny that you, you, you asked how, how do we tell that story? And I don't necessarily think that um, present circumstances aside where, uh, you know, you have to be able to save the industry. I, I think that that story has been told for, um, for, for decades by other people. Uh, they just might not have necessarily known that they're telling that story. They're talking about the the time they uh, fell in love, or the time that they saw the best show of their life, or the time yeah. that um, you know they they them and their friends went out uh, for the last time as a group. You know, like all of these things, and and we all have those memories. We we all kind of have that. Um, it's almost like you can you can smell that evening. You know, you you remember every single minute of it and you remember the band and you remember the person you were standing next to. You remember what shirt you were wearing. You know, you remember how much parking costs. Like all of these things are just ingrained because it's these these venues are so integral to the daily functioning of us as humans. 
of how we interact with each other, of how the cities are composed, of how of of how people grow. Um, that you know, when 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 people have kids, they're they're thinking to themselves, well, what's going to be my kid's first concert? Right, right. You know, all of these things that you know they're going to be talking about in twenty and thirty years. And you have these institutions across the country that have been around for 20, 30, 50 years. But then you also have these younger, often smaller uh, venues that are, uh, you know, filling up corners of, uh, of, of downtown areas that are currently being, uh, you know, gentrified in their, in their own way and, and bringing economy to places that might not necessarily have those types of businesses. And being but the that's where bands leader, start. Bands start in those places. REM. Think about it. I mean, bands start in those places, playing in front of 16 people when thousands of people will say they were there and it's only 16 people that were there. Look, at it. also you mentioned like how, how will we tell this story? One of the things that's unique about our business that isn't necessarily the same as many other businesses, because let's not forget, one of the reasons we're doing this is because every business in America in some way, shape or form has been impacted by this is going out and looking for funding at this point in time and trying to justify what their needs are. The, the beautiful thing about our business is what Moose mentioned, but it's extrapolated out to the hundreds of thousands per promoter because we have databases full of people that we communicate to every year. Like I said, we send out 165 million emails a year. Some people think they get them all, I think, but we send that many emails out. And as does Stana, and what that is, is that's our power. We have people who have, who have, yeah. as Moose said, like religious experiences at our venues, and they have a relationship with us that is superior to saying like, you know, I just went out to a movie and I saw a movie or whatever. No, man, when people go to see that show, like Moose is saying, and they remember that moment, and we actually carried really cool beers and they weren't at horrible prices and they didn't get sold their ticket by a scalper because we fight that. And the bathroom was clean. And by the way, it had toilet paper, not like this bathroom does, but it had toilet paper, not on the ground. But when you have all those things and that perfect experience is there and the people who are helping them get in the door are nice and they're not, you know, being horrible to them. Like all the things that independent promoters and venues we try to do because we have to fight every day to make our places better every day in every single way. The experience that people take away from that is that they believe us. What I would suggest and what we've talked about is that like when we had, when we first had to, you know, stop doing shows, we, as many other people did, we put up a, a GoFundMe for our part-time people, bartenders and ushers and things like that. In 10 days, we raised $71,000, almost entirely from just the people who are in our database who supported that. And we were able to pay a month's worth of, you know, it would be $100,000 minus, uh, minus uh, taxes, a month's worth of payroll for part-time staff, you know, just in time to hit, you know, them just after they've lost a month's worth of pay. What yeah. amazes me That's, most about that, Gary, is, is that, like, I, I watched that happen probably several hundred times across venues in different cities of different sizes. And what I find the most amazing aside from the fact that almost every venue was doing this to help their staff, right? Not to cover their own costs, but to help their staff. What I find amazing is that the, the, the patrons felt the need to be able to say, I, I have to cover this person like this one person. And that one person is 30 people sometimes, but this one person is so important to me that I, it, that I need to make sure that they're okay. Cause I don't think that, 
you know, we would have seen that same, uh, that same response if it were a trucking company uh, saying, hey, can you keep my, my, my drivers fed for the next few weeks? Like people don't necessarily feel that same importance in- even though. I mean, but independent venues, like we're a building and we're four walls and a stage, but I mean, the heart and soul is the people. And I think, you know, Gary agrees. And I think every promoter probably would agree, you know, that like, you know, having a, a stage and having the walls is great, but it's, it's all about, you know, the, the people who are filling it and making that experience, you know, what it is every day. Like I know at First Avenue, you know, you love First Avenue. Um, and that's, if, if you don't, you tend to like not last or not, you know, cause it's a hard job. It's, it's, it's not just the hours, it's a lifestyle and it's an obsession and it's, you know, kind of personally, like what I, when I'm not with my kids, you know, what I think about all the time. Um, and so you can feel that love when you walk into a building and you know, kind of the, the rooms that people love and they cherish and they take care of and the ones that, you know, maybe people don't as much. And, um, certainly I, I think that for first Avenue, the people is, is our advantage. I mean, as, maybe even more than Prince in history. Well, I know it's, it's kind of the beauty though. And, and it is what happens when, you know, when things become corporatized in a way, I mean, you can't help it because you're taking something and extrapolating it out from Dana being in her market, you know, doing the number of venues that she's doing and saying, Oh, and by the way, Dana, can you do that in 35 other markets? And can you keep control of that same level of integrity? And at some point in time, some VC or someone else comes in and says, you know, we need to be able to make money doing this. And therefore, like for my business, then, oh, I don't know, then backstage, I don't have an executive chef, a sous chef, a pastry chef, and a barista backstage in my theater anymore, because that's line, that's a line item that's automatically cut out. No idiot would spend money on that in the venue, except independent venue operators and owners who, (laughs) you know, who have to battle because we need to make sure that the experience is so good that Milwaukee gets included on the routing because bands love to eat and they love to eat and they get treated like crap on the road. And they usually get, because food has been turned into a line item and what they do, the people at our venues and what Dana said is so important because it's very rare, honestly, that everyone's going to, everyone who goes to a show is going to run into me or run into Dana, you know, generally they run into one of my dogs who are running around one of my venues, but, 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 you know, yeah, they're running into dedicated people. I, I find this amazing. I've been doing this for 18 years. I have bartenders who've worked for us for 16, 17 years. I have ushers who've worked for us for all those years. And we do things that corporate venues don't, man. We do three nights of widespread panic every night at 2 a.m. after we have there's so much alcohol that is taking <laughs> place around us that we feed all our people wings one night, you know, we'll do, you know, we'll do pizza another night, we'll do barbecue another night. Everybody is just like talking about their experience. They're dead tired. And they've just treated people wonderfully. We get great reward rewarding responses from panic fans about it. It's the reason why we do the shows with panic. But at the end of the night, everyone loves the feeling of what they've done together and they feel like they've accomplished something. And they also know that we as an organization know that we know that they're important and we care about them and frankly that's the reason why we did as everybody else did the gofundme because mm-hmm. you know if you looked at on those gofundmes of the venues if you looked at the comments of the people who gave money it's it gives you the chills to think about 
some of those people because don't forget they're going through the same thing everybody else is going through. They're wondering where tomorrow is going to be, but giving a hundred dollars because they can't wait to get back to the next show. I mean, all those comments like that were absolutely amazing. And then we, for our side, like we sent the money after we collected a certain amount so we could pay everybody as soon as possible. We're able to do it as uh, as a gift to them so they wouldn't be taxed on it. And the comments that we got back from people and some of the people were like, I don't really need the money. I want to give it to so-and-so. It means, I don't know. I mean, I know we're a business, but at the same time, I know that we're something more than that. No, it's community. It's all about community. I mean, that that's, I mean, what you said just like brought, you know, tears to my eyes because it's not just about, um, it's not just about a balance sheet or like a PL statement at the end of the year and, um, you know, dividends and, you know, it's about the community that we're building and how we're supporting it and how we're nourishing it and, you know, maintaining it for, I, you know, I view myself as a, a steward, you know, not a business owner. Like I'm stewarding First Avenue in the Minneapolis St. Paul music community into the next generation. Um, and I think what Gary said just, you know, highlights that and, and says it way better than I just did. So you've got the priority of a lobbying effort, essentially, with for, for federal relief and support. You've got a, a sort of fundraising initiative to keep the organization going, as well as trying to channel um, support to the GoFundMe pages and just drive awareness for what the venue and promoter members are doing. Um, what's What's been the reaction at the local community level? Is it... Are, are the communities too paralyzed to, to be able to help and think about you? Like, can local government play a role? Um, can state government pay, play a role? Is the problem so big that it can only be a federal solution? Like, how do you how do you go from being an important member of your neighborhood community and your local community to to the to the federal stage? What what's in between, and how is that all working? I, I think that that the the real answer to your question from earlier, which is why hasn't there been a national organization before is because the local communities have been so engaged and they have been able to uh, rally when they need to. And, um, you know, there are certainly a number of local organizations or regional organizations like the Chicago Independent Venue League or the Red River Cultural District in Austin. And, you know, these different groups that have uh, taken shape over the years for one reason or another. Um, the, the difference between what has happened in the past and now is this is affecting everyone across the, the world. Um, so when that changes and you're no longer going to the governor and saying, look at this, this is important, please pay attention, you're instead fighting for an entire industry sector, that, that has to happen from a federal level. The states are going to have their priorities. The local city governments are going to have their priorities. And it's not as if those conversations aren't happening. But from a federal level, when you're talking about government-mandated shutdowns, there has to be government assistance that comes with it. Um, we've seen on, uh, on, on a, a media side of things, local press has been incredibly supportive. The stories that local press are telling on behalf of these venues, on behalf of the uh, the, the neighborhoods and, the, and, and talking about the artists and the homes and the careers that have come out of those are, are amazing. And then you have the uh, local relationships with elected officials, whether that's, you know, local or state or, or federal, because these are people that are already talking with their elected officials on a daily basis for one reason or another. They're the folks that are handling fundraisers. They're the folks that are, uh, you know, 
they're, they're going out for entertainment themselves. I mean, there's a lot of memories that happen with this to begin with. So I think that um, the local aspect is, is what makes these venues so special to begin with. The unique aspect in this case is that there's a national organization that is working to be able to look out for all of their collective interests and as fair of a way of, as humanly possible when you're talking about, well, right now, 800 different, um, you know, partners within this. But it's so cool to have everyone talking, you know? So like amongst the lobbying committee, that topic came up of like, okay, what are, you know, what are you getting from your city? And then, you know, I'll just make up names, but like, you know, Cleveland, Ohio, be like, oh, we asked our city council for this. And then Austin, Texas is like, oh, well, a couple of years ago, we got this. And then, you know, Missoula, Montana will say, well, but have you thought about this? And so everyone, you know, is learning. And I think like we said, you know, sharing knowledge, sharing resources so that we can, you know, get all the help that we need. And again, the goal is just to come out of this with a strong independent music ecosystem. Um, yeah, so it could. Whatever, if it's federal or state or city or county or philanthropic, I mean, that that's the goal. That sort of strikes me. Uh, something when Gary was speaking earlier, there's, there's, um, in my mind, there was sort of this inherent tension because independent, it's a loaded word, right? There's, and you guys talked about this, like you're independent. It's a badge of honor. It's a, it's an identifier, but it, it also has other connotations, you know, uh, an army of one sometimes, you know, it, or, you know, you, you've all used sort of the language around sort of fighting a battle and, and, and struggle, you know, that, that, that's part of being independent as well. But then when you find other independents and you realize, oh, wait a minute, they're going through the same thing. You know, there's like a peer support element. Um, and then there's also the element of, I don't have to invent the solution to this problem. I totally buy that. into that idea. I love the idea that I, I always think that I, that I had to be creative and I had to think of every solution. But I completely love the idea that you can take something that works already and simply make it better. And there are always people who are, that's the reason why we subscribe to each other's email list, by the way, because we get to see a lot of the great things that, that we do, uh, that our other groups do. And, and that makes us, we're all kind of a, you know, we're all kind of a little bit of each other overall. I remember in the very beginning, we would look at like the Seattle theater group guys when they first built their site and their email and how they did it. Uh, you know, I looked at, there's a venue in Portland we looked at, there's a venue in Philly that we looked at the Keswick and they were before they got sold to, uh, to AEG, like they had a different vibe and they were kind of moving towards that thing. So I think we all kind of gravitate towards that, but I think that the ability to have us have a network that actually allows us to not just be peeking in the window, we get to actually come in the house and, and, and not be arrested for peeking. So, you know, but I think what's so cool is like, you can, take what you want and leave what you want. You know, there's yeah. no like, remember Aniva doesn't mean you have to ask for this or you have any like restrictions. Like, you know, dependent has 100% agency and authority and, you know, to um, say, great, I love that suggestion. Or like, can go, can I uh, go F off and uh, I'm doing it my own way, you know, <laughs> which I think but that's the that dependent is that you don't have to follow like, uh, a dictate that's sent from the coast or that's sent from, you know, CEO somewhere that you've never met. Yeah. There is a piece of our business, though, that says that information is power. One of the powers that Live Nation or AG have is that they have phone calls where they're able to talk to each other and say, you know, they're talking about what tours are coming out because they have information at a higher level. And they're able to then share that throughout their groups. 
you know, look, one of the possibilities here is the ability for us to do the exact same type of thing. It's the ability for us to be able to say that this is happening or that is happening, or this is what I'm doing with this, or this is how I did with that. Um, you know, I think that we, we all want to use all the tools that are available when we make our decisions. And then you got to like rest your soul based upon whatever you've made, decided to pay or do or ticket price, whatever it might be. But you want to use all the tools possible. This might really essentially give us one more tool because then we've got that information shared from each other and experiences and, and things like that of what we can do to build a better offer or build a better offer sheet, especially yeah. in the new generation of America capitalism version 2.0 that we're going to be getting into after the pandemic. Are we going to build better offer sheets that might, you know, provide better, uh, you know, protection for us and opportunities for us? Yeah. And even like on a more sanity. micro level, like we were having an issue at First Avenue, we always X hands, but people started getting really upset about that. If, you know, that was an expired license or, uh, you know, or, or live restriction on the license, they didn't want that marked. And so I was able to call Gary and be like, oh my God, what do you do? I, we don't want to X. And he gave us what they do. And, you know, we were able to, you know, update our processes and, and become a better organization because we had that relationship. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's yeah, I, because I, it's, the, it's the small things that derail your entire day, right? Like the big things where where you're on the phone with a banker or, you know, something like that where you're like, okay, you, you, you put the blinders on and you move forward with it. But it's the small things where somebody comes in and they say, uh, hey, I um, have this thing happening at home and I'm not going to be able to work in the same way. And you're just like, okay, well, how do other people deal with it? So just having like a, a peer that you can reach out to and go, I'm dealing with something. I remember you mentioned it too. What, what ended up coming from it? it it makes it so much easier to know that you're not alone. Even if, even if you're the one that, 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 that's bearing the cost of what's happening to you, you're not carving out new territory every single step. And let's put it in perspective with where we are today. So let's say we have to make decisions about how, for example, we, can we do two shows in one day? How do we clean our theaters and our bathrooms after a show? Are we taking temperatures when people come in the venue? Are we staggering entries or, you know, you know, uh, door, uh, door times for people to be able to come in? And, you know, in the older days, that would be just my partner and I and some other people at our venue sitting around going like, oh, what do we do? This is what we let. We talk it through. We get to a point. But now this is a network for us to all share that. It's not to keep it secret. By the way, let's say that we have to take temperatures at entrance of all of our doors. Isn't it going to be a better buy if we're buying thousands of the, of those hand reading temperature guides instead of buying 40 or 30, if we can go out and buy 10,000 of those, I'm fairly certain that each of us on the call can negotiate a really good price because it's what we do normally, you know, yeah. and, and it applies to all aspects because there will be cleaning changes about how we sanitize our theaters there'll be changes at our bars there'll be changes about possibly going cashless and all those things we should have the power to negotiate maybe it helps us long term when we look at even our our solutions that we have at our bars and what we use to be able to use as a a tracking pos system in our bars that we're able to negotiate and get you know things for all those things were generally created by us sitting in our rooms with our people going like okay, I think we'll do this, or I saw this here, and it looks that, that it works well. But now we have a network, and I'm sure by the time this rolls through, we'll be over well into the thousand. 
of, of groups where we can put this up on the board and suggest it and find out who has information and then maybe benefit by the buying power and the logic and knowledge of doing it. So here's the thing that, that really strikes me. Um, well, actually, there's a few things. One, the fact that here we are knee deep. We don't even know, actually, are we, is this at our ankles, our knees, our hips? Like, how far into this are we right now? Um, but we're already talking about the future with some optimism and some real excitement. And I, I, when, when I first heard about this organization, I went right to some of the places you all are at now as well, thinking about, wow, what could this be when we're all back up and running? whether it is routing a tour, buying shows, you know, the consolidated buying power, like there's so many fun things we're gonna be able to do when we're out of survival mode. Um, but it also goes back to something else. Um, I was talking uh, to Polestar a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about um, optimism and we were talking about, I think Dana alluded to it earlier, maybe Moose did, you know, the, the corporate messaging that, that's been coming down really since the beginning of this has been, very pessimistic and sort of negative in a lot of ways. And we can talk about, you know, the, whether there's some self-serving in that message or whether there's a strategy in that messaging. But the, the comment I made in the piece was that, you know, to, to open a venue, to build the experience, to roll your money on putting on an event and knowing and hoping that people will come, like that's an optimistic worldview. That's an optimistic person. The kind of people that, are doing what you do. Um, now, I've been on the other side of the table. There's plenty of gruff, <laughs> tough, um, you know, difficult straight shooter um, people, but that's, that's business. Like that's, what, that's how you survive and thrive. Doesn't mean being unfair, doesn't mean being nasty, but to, to put on a show and to build a scene and to build a community, that's, that to me is like, that's probably in the textbook definition of optimism. And it's amazing to sit here talking to, to talk to the three of you while we're all in survival mode and we're talking about how great it's going to be and what all the opportunities are down the road. I was just saying, I think that's what, you know, why the group is so passionate and so active and because we're fighting for our community, you know, and I, uh, I'm going to get to the optimism mode one day soon. I hope I'm definitely like in the survival. Um, like we have to, we can't wake up in a world that doesn't have any independent music venues and to even think about that being a legitimate reality is, is so mind boggling and uh, depressing that you kind of, you have to live in the hope somewhere. And I do have hope that the federal legislators will uh, listen to our story and, and respect it and choose to value us. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the optimism on working towards that and feeling, I think there, there can be hope because there is a unified voice now. And so that, that's what, get, that's what's giving me hope. I, I, I also, think that the, the optimism that you're talking about though, to me, it's, 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 almost an entrepreneurship uh, given, right? You, you know, like these, these are, are business owners that are always working towards what tomorrow's growth is going to be. Like, like Gary said earlier, it's a bunch of sharks, right? And you're always swimming and you're always trying to figure out what your next meal is. I think that's part of what these conversations are, um, is okay, it's a desert now, but at some point there will be another side of this. I mean, factually, there will be another side of this. Everybody knows that's going to be the case. We just don't know when that's going to be. So when that happens, and there, and there will be a return to people congregating in one space and entertainment and all the other aspects of, of the industry that come with this, 
um, when that happens, there will be a lot of opportunities for the people that are still in business then. So it's important that uh, the independently owned venues and promoters are able to make that gap because the, uh, the multinational and the publicly traded companies have made it clear that they have enough runway that they're not as worried about it. They're doing their cutbacks and their, you know, their stocks are taking a hit and everything else like that. But that's certainly different than being the, um, I forget the word Dana said, but the caretaker of the, uh, of the venue that's been around for so long and wanting to give that to the next generation. That's, that's a different type of, I guess, uh, priority, internal priority than most people would feel if it were just a job. In order to sustain our employees and our venues, you know, we don't have shareholders. I mean, I don't have investors. We're looking at massive loans, personal guarantees, without any assurance that we are going to be able to reopen. Yeah, like Moose said, like there have been calls and they, the multinationals said they have enough cash to not do another show for 2020. I certainly can't say the same. You know, maybe other independents are in, in different shapes. But like I said, I don't know any independent business that can go without revenue for 18 months and sit here and go, yeah, we're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. You know, this is, this is survival mode. I think that optimism comes from there was a two-week period there for, for the first two weeks. I know that we had a lot of conversations with Dana's team where we were playing defense. We didn't know. This was all new to us. Um, everything, every day, there was something different. I remember even in my own internal conference calls where it was like, I was like, I didn't know if I wanted to hear from other people because they were so depressed about everything that was like something new that day. But I think there was a time of change there. And I think what what creates optimism is that we stopped playing defense and we started playing offense. The beginning of time yeah. of planning this, that was a chance of going back to what we do at our core. Okay, we have something that we have to solve. We know this is going to – now we're accepting that it's changing every day. Let's let it change every day. Let's expect the change. But let's take it on and do what we can do. Because in the beginning, I remember the first call that Dana made, you know, when we talked about what she found out about what she thought what was coming down from the stimulus. And we were automatically all like – bam, let's go on offense. And we went on offense at that time. From that day forward, you know, and that includes creating this, I think that's all given us a sense of optimism because we're doing something about it. Instead of just trying to play dodgeball, we were trying not to get hit. Now we're starting to throw back. And that's a better feeling. So we have a couple of minutes left. One thing I'd like to ask each of you, because again, uh, you know, we have a there's, you know, there's a diversity of people that listen to this. Some people within the industry, some are just fans, some, you know, we don't know who will ultimately choose to, uh, to give a listen. Can you speak to the listener and what's the one ask? What's the practical thing somebody listening to this can do, whether they're an industry stakeholder, what's something you need them to do differently? What do you need your local fan community to do on your behalf? Um, what, what's, what's the concrete ask? Go ahead, Dana. Um, certainly, uh, tell your representative, support your venue, uh, help, help us tell our story, tell your representative why your local independent venue is important to you. Be, op be open to hearing our story and, uh, and, you know, assisting your local venue. I think if you're an industry stakeholder, you can help us by, you know, finding other independent venues and send them our way. That's, and we know that there are so many that are out there. And look, we also know that they're blinded right now because they're focused on this impossible thing that, they're, that they've never had happen to them before. So if you're a stakeholder, send them our way, no matter what. 
And if you're in our databases, if you're people who come to our shows, wait for the emails that we'll be sending to you that give you opportunities to take action, that have very specific opportunities to be able to talk to your congressman, to talk to your senator, and let them know how important we are you know, to what your life is about and to what your city's life is about. I, th I think the most important thing is just to show up. And we don't have a physical place for people to show up right now. So everything Dana and Gary said is, is where we're going to have to be able to focus those efforts now. Show up if you have access to, um, you know, helping to fund NEVA. It, like, you know, Light uh, was such a, a, a great and, and early and sea tickets and like everybody who's been such a huge help from the beginning where, where, where it was identified like here's a need and, and we're very grateful for that. Other people are going to be able to uh, activate their own local representatives and they'll be able to make those phone calls when the time is right. Other people are going to be able to donate towards GoFundMe. You know, other people are going to be able just to look at their neighbors and say, this is important to me. Could you help support in a way that you can? But to be able to show up is, is really important right now. Um, it, we're, we're all obligated to take care of our neighbors right now. And I, I view these venues as a very important part of that neighborhood. Hey, and show up by also like you have a lot of time where you're actually working from home now. Listen to a lot of music, buy band T-shirts, like download and pay for artists new music. If you like Fiona Apple, buy the new Fiona Apple album. You know, I mean, support those artists because, you know, we are like, you know, basically we're like chefs. Like we can't cook without the artists as part of our ingredients. And secondly, we can't cook without the audience as the other part of our ingredients. So we need to keep the entire kind of synergistic effort healthy. So if we come out of this, okay, but the artists aren't supported because don't forget, they have no revenue coming in at all at this point in time. And we were their outlet. I'm, I realized that for many years, the record business was their outlet. Once they're able to do the magic word of recouping, which basically very few actually did recoup unless you were Elvis or something. But, but uh, uh, he probably didn't recoup because he gave it all to his manager. But, uh, you know, I mean, support artists as well. I, yeah. I think I'm exceptionally, I keep thinking about the optimism and like I could not be more hopeful because if there's anything I've learned in the last six weeks is that nothing replaces the experience of live music. And I, uh, I knew I'd miss it. I had no idea how much I would miss it. I would give it anything to be able to go to a show and have a drink and, and hang out and see an artist, even, you know, a local artist, a not favorite artist, anyone just get me, get me to a show right now. And I know if I'm feeling this, I know, you know, every, everyone out there is feeling that way too. And so, you know, I know that when we open, we're going to be able to open stronger than ever. Um, and so uh, I am ex exceptionally optimistic and grateful for everyone listening and everyone who helps us get through this time. The magic of people showing up is incredible, right? I mean, the whole idea, you know, what you said earlier about like you have to take that risk and you're, you're going to book the show and you're going to sell tickets and people show up. Like I remember in 2005 or six, we did Bell and Sebastian, $25 tickets. They had no airplay. Who knew back then? And I remember my partner, Matt, and I, we sold that show out and we just stood in that room and it was it like if you could bottle the emotion in that room, especially for us, even knowing that, like this could happen, like that's inspirational. And you're right. Like I, I miss that. I miss, I miss knowing that people believe that there's a whole society of people that believe in entertainment enough to show up. Cause look, we're not Amazon. Our business is not amazon.com. You don't buy something, sit at home and a cardboard box gets thrown on your doorstep and you never leave your house 
and you're in quarantine. In our business, people buy stuff online, the majority of it online, and they get up out of their house, they go to a bar, they go to a restaurant, they park their car, and they come to a show, they participate. The value of our customer is so much greater than just the static database of someone who just simply sits and buys things at home. It's crazy what our customers actually mean to really to the comeback of what America is going to need in version 2.0. Yeah. Well, listen, I, um, there's a lot, I think that we, we didn't cover and there's a lot more I'd love to cover in the coming weeks and months. So I hope we can treat this as the start of a dialogue and, um, have you all come back periodically, maybe talk to some other members. Um, I'm working on some things where we're going to talk to some fans and see what they're thinking and feeling and, and, um, get, get some fan perspective. Um, so I hope we can count on talking to you again. Um, I thank you for making time. And as somebody who's been going to concerts, you know, I went to my first show in 1983 and I was thinking the other day, trying to do the math, you know, even before I worked in the business, I don't think a month went by without going to a show. So I'm, I'm looking at almost 40 years of at least monthly shows, if not weekly, if not nightly at different times as a, you know, some personal professional combination just to, just in the same way that I had to stop flying every week for work, I've had to stop yeah. going through turnstiles every week or so. And it's jarring and it sucks. So I can't What wait. was that first show? What was that um, first show? It was the Kinks at the New Haven Coliseum. Wow. wow. <laughs> you got some cred there. I thought you were gonna, I thought it was going to be something like, uh, it was, yeah. Okay. I'll yeah. tell you what, it is a very cool first concert for a 12-year-old kid. But if you looked at the next maybe six, <laughs> I would go to anything at that point. In the 80s, I saw everybody. Um, All right, Dana, Dana, first show? I, I have such a good one, it's not fair. Um, I went with my very cool older sister to see the Pixies at first half. I was like, oh, God. I know, I know, it's not fair. All right, but my sister worked at a skate shop, and like, man. Man. Awesome. You got credit first, right uh, first show, not first concert, but first show, huh? First show would have been HR from Bad Brains. Oh, Jesus. At, uh, I thought the kinks were good. Uh, well, <clears throat> I didn't like it. Uh, so um, I guess I didn't, I didn't know anything about Bad Brains at the time. I actually went to see the opening band, which was the Skunks. Uh, and it was at the 930 Club. Wow. But uh, technically, nice. HR was, uh, was my first show. I had no idea what, what I was in for. Wow. That's pretty cool. You're an embarrassing one if someone has to. Uh, my first favorite ball was the Spin Doctors. So there you go. It's not all. Oh, cool. there you go. <laughs> there you go. That's a uh, that, and they're still. Uh, as a matter of fact, I had the Spin Doctors tour manager in one of my venues forty days ago, and the Spin Doctors apparently are huge in Panama. They Amazing. headlined a festival in Panama. That's I know. Awesome. It's, I mean, who would know that? But they he had just come from headlining a festival. He's like, Wait. I'm like who for? He's like Spin Doctors. I've been there with them for like. Ever and he's like, I'm like spin doctors at a festival. He goes, yeah, they headline there. Gary's really hurting like, the question. Why aren't you answering the question, Gary? Oh, I'm I I mean my, I'm so much older that I have such a great answer. It was, 19, was Beethoven. Ni 1974. It was Uriah Heep, the Wonder <sighs> World Tour, and somebody passed me a, like my parents dropped me off, and somebody passed me a purple colored cigarette down the aisle back in that, and that was. I was so high by the time I got back in my parents' car <laughs> that uh, I, they didn't notice, though, because they weren't that cool. So, But, yeah, that was it. Uh, and opening for Uriah Heep was the Atlanta Rhythm Section. I remember nice. the night incredibly well. So, yeah. 
they were so That's into amazing. me that night. So, yeah. That's amazing. Wow. Well, thank you all. Thank you. I look forward to doing this again, and I look forward to uh, passing through the turnstiles at each of the venues very, very soon. Thank you so much, Dana, Moose, Gary, and the hundreds and hundreds of Neva members. Thank you for spending time with Spotlight On. Remember that Spotlight On is available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you can get podcasts from. Spotlight is produced and edited by Craig Snyder. Thank you to Ant Taylor and the entire Light family. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, please visit light.com. And keep your feedback coming. Reach me at lawrence at light.com. That's L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E at L-Y-T-E dot com. Finally, if you like what we're up to here, please share us with a friend and post a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform. It's much appreciated. Thank you so much. Stay safe and stay in touch. <laughs>